market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yep, it's our special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me, as always, the very special but the very regular Dr. Mahanti. How are you, anyone? Good morning, Sunday. It's, well, Sunday slash Thursday. As we say, we're recording this on Thursday, but we're projecting morning, ourselves Thursday. in the future. So, so confident are we in the future of the world, we're prepared to pre-record a podcast for Sunday, believing that we'll still be around, the end of the world won't have come, and this won't be a waste of our time. What do you reckon, mate? Decent, decent odds? I recommend that is absolutely correct. At some point, that's, at some point, that's a, an optimistic bet, right? But I think for now, we should, be, we should be safe. I don't think this Sunday is the day the world ends. Well, uh, hopefully not. I was planning to do some gardening. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it like five billion years until the sun explodes or something? Is that is that the number you're familiar with? Or well, something like that. Some huge number of billions. You know, billions have lots of zeros. So, you know, I don't even you know count them how many zeros they have. And five, then you had a five in front of it. It's like five times a lot of zeros. So, all right. So here's my, here's my question like for you. Starting with a mm. tangent. What are the mm-hmm. what, what odds would you give humanity of being around when the sun explodes? What goes first, humanity or the sun? Well, I'm hoping by the time, you know, like we'll be like uh, Star Wars and Starship and Star Trek <laughs> and all these other things. We will have spread to, you know, okay. hundreds of different planets. Oh, and, you know, all right. okay, uh, okay. you know, like, I mean, if just imagine, you know, and you're you're Captain Phillips. Like, I mean, you know, you should be <laughs> of all people who should be wanting this to happen. It should be you. Right. Uh, mate, you, know, you, can, you know, well, they need more doctors than captains, mate. Captains are expendable. Y- yeah, but you, you know, you can have your own, like, I don't know, ship floating around in the galaxy with your own little planet. I like it, man. I like your it. The, own, uh, own little thing, yeah. The I USS mean, you know, Motley Fool. I like, I'm liking it. I'm, I'm going to work with that. Uh, I was so, going to call so, it the USS, uh, USS uh, Phillips. There we go. There we go. So, so you're going you know, to, so, okay, let, let's, let's go back to life on Earth as opposed to life somewhere. Are humans still on Earth when the sun explodes? Well, if the sun explodes, then you know it's going to be difficult for humans here. So, <laughs> no, I mean, will they be here at the point it happens? Will they? Will they? Will they last that long as a, as a species? Oh, I think so. I mean, you know, okay. I'm pretty optimistic of species already. Well, okay. it depends, right? You know, it depends. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll change my answer. I, I think some of the species would have disappeared from planet. The question is, yep. the rest of the species are they going to just kill each other? Right, right. <laughs> There's a high probability of those sort of things happening. I, I guess I'm, I'm an optimist, mate, but I reckon I reckon the odds of humanity being around in five billion years are, are very small. I'll, I'll, let me put that one down. But what do I know? Mm. What do I know? In any case, the compound returns to be not. Imagine if you put a dollar down now on something, on, on the on the on an ETF, an SFP 500 ETF, and came back in five billion years. I reckon you'd, you'd have a few dollars. Yeah, but, but, the the, but the question is, is uh, at that time, are people transacting in dollars or are they transacting <laughs> in like, you know, uh, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum uh-huh. and uh, God knows what else? Surely right? it's going to be Musk coin or Tesla coin by then, dog. Come on. I, I really don't know. Like, I mean, you know, it could be anything. It could be, you know. <laughs> Elon's face in the know, back of the be, coins. I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing could it. Be, could, could, be, could be just about <laughs> anything. It, absolutely anything. So mate, That's enough for danger, mate. Let's get, on, let's get on to the questions, huh? Yeah, let's do that. All right. So the first question comes from Sports Girl, who's emailed us before. And this one's a personal finance question, but I like it. And I thought it was something a little bit different to kick us off with. She says, hello, Scott. I have my contents insurance renewal notice to pay. I went on the web and obtained three quotes. Spectacular. Well done. All of which were cheaper than my current insurer. How good's that? By the way, I get a discount with RACV for long membership. Great. Uh, all right. So she goes through and says, okay, my question is, how do I choose which one of the other three to change to? She says, one quote is $181. 
One is $209 and one is $191, all roughly around the same cost. Is there any way I could pick out one over the others? I'm ahead with the saving here, which is great. So glad I didn't renew automatically. Any suggestions would be great. I don't know who to ask. Thank you. Well, you've come to the right place because we have more opinions than we need. We're happy to share them with other people. Doc, uh, your thoughts, mate, on this is a, we don't do insurance generally speaking. But, you know, the good news is each of those three is cheaper than the existing one. So the first lesson, fools, is be like sports school, get a better rate, as I always like to say. But how would you choose, mate, between the other options? Would you go the cheapest? Would you go the brand you knew best? Would you, how else would you choose which insurer to switch to for your home contents insurance? Well, you, you know, I look at the, so like, I mean, I look at the fine line in terms of what they're covering, right? So right. are the excess the same? Uh, are they covering everything? Sometimes, you know, things like um, water damage, flood damage is covered, yes. less covered, yes. not covered, storm damage is not covered. A lot of, the, like in many things in life, <laughs> the fine mm-hmm. print actually matter. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, with especially things like insurance, right? Because insurance is something that you don't actually want to be using. Um, But when you want to be using it, you better make sure that it covers almost every possible type of (laughs) risk that you're trying to cover yourself from. So you want to. So I think that's the thing, right? I mean, um, I I had a car insurance that I changed from one provider to another because the 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 insurer uh, in the second year, while giving me a discount, wouldn't, you know, basically would only give me a market cover and would not cover up you know you know i said i'm willing to pay more to cover more but they wouldn't do it right so again it depends individual circumstances it depends on what you're trying to get but i would read what is covered what is offered uh what are the exclusions all of those things and you know all things being equal of course you pick the cheap cheaper one i'll add one more thing this is you know maybe this is a to me if an insurance company does not have a call center locally, <laughs> I have a problem with it. Uh, <laughs> so I actually, one of the things for insurance companies is I prefer to have a call center mm. uh, locally, largely because that means it's a little bit more accessible. The individual might be more familiar with what's going on um, and, and so on and so forth. You know, just, just a little bit more local awareness. It's insurance, is, you know, you need more local context. So that's, you know, again, that's my slight preference for insurance is, uh, you know, I don't care about the company. The company could be an international company. It doesn't really matter. But I try to try to you know find out if the if the if they have service locally available. If they have service locally available, then that's fine. Um, nice. Those are sort of my general sort of again you know rough broad edges. Yep, I love that, mate. I love the idea of going through the policy, making sure you know what you're covered for, and making sure the policies are like for like, because often they're not. Um, super, super important one. Uh, depends on uh, depends on the individual policy, of course, and what you're trying to cover. Cars, different from home, different from contents. But absolutely, have a look. Great, great idea. Love that. Um, love the idea of the the service, mate. I would happily pay up, by the way, for a brand I trusted more, who I've had good experience with in the past, and or I actually go online and look at reviews of people who've had claims from that company, or ask around to family and friends to see if they've had that experience. It shouldn't be a big deal. But you know what? The difference between 181, 191, and 209, yep, 28 bucks is better in my pocket than theirs. But if I had to pay $28 a year more for a business I had a high confidence in that would actually meet the claims because they've got a good reputation, I'd happily go with that. So, Sports Call, there you go. Uh, I, you know, I would be inclined yeah, to, to go with a brand you knew and trusted. I'm... I'm a brand person generally, so I, I'll, I'll put that in the in the um, I'll put that in the mix. Um, but I think in terms of which 
ensure you go with. If they're all much and much, just take the cheaper one. Uh, but I would absolutely pay up, as you say, Doc. I've got a, a line which insurance is really expensive until you need it, and that's really, really cheap when you do. Um, and so, you know, that that's the that's one of those things. I'd go with the insurance policy most likely to look after you, both the conditions, as Doc says, and their ability to pay it. I like the local call center too, mate. You just don't want to have hassles when it comes time to claim. So have a think about that. Good question. Go on to start us off. Mate, next question we've got comes from David. Actually, this, we've got a couple of answers actually, mate. So I like this. Um, we normally do the answering and frankly, our listeners are trying to put us out of a job and that's okay with us. Um, David says, hi, Scott and Doc. I love the podcast. Normally, your podcast goes straight to the top of my queue as soon as it comes out. Good man. But this week, there was one I had to listen to first. David, I don't understand. I'm not sure what your point is. Anyway, um, I will finish your question, I think, because you say nice things about me and my views, and I like that. He says, I listened to an amazing episode of the Invest Like the Best podcast, which I also do like, where they interviewed Chamath. Now, Doc, I'm not going to do this out of, uh, out of not wanting to uh, or to, to make fun of it, but I can't pronounce Chamath's surname as well as you can. So I'm going to ask you out of respect uh, to try and get it right. How would you pronounce Chamath's surname, mate? So I would pronounce it as Chamath Pahalipatia. Yes, it's Pahalipatia. Is that close? Pahalipatia, and his, Pahalipatia. it's a name of Sri Lankan origin. Um, oh, right. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's cool. Okay, cool. There you go. So Jamath's a really super cool investor. Uh, David continues. He's a former Facebook exec, VC investor. And if the rumors are true, potentially the next governor of California. And David goes on to say he articulated the exact same idea that Scott has mentioned for, on several occasions for the government to invest a small amount of money at birth for every citizen. He called the idea a birth dividend. He says the first 10 minutes or so of the podcast were dedicated to personal finance and I think you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Keep up the great work, guys. So there you go. I actually quite like Invest Like the Best as a podcast. Um, David does too. So, you know, as much as we would rather, you always listen to ours first, David. I can't complain if ours are second. This week alone, mate, just once. Just this once. Um, but yeah, there you go. So if you're, I, I, I imagine, Doc, you would suggest that listening to Tremarth interview is worthwhile anyway, uh, just for the, for the excellence he brings to the table. Is that, is that fair to say you're a big fan? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of generally, like I'm a fan of out-of-box, innovative, you know, people who are willing, you know, not many people are willing to go outside sort of the normal norms to challenge things. Yeah, right. And he, I think usually, I guess, you know, when people become successful and they're billionaires, it's easier to, of course, challenge things <laughs> because um, it's yeah. much harder for common common folks to challenge things. I mean, I right. get that. Um, but, you know, there are lots of billionaires who basically don't challenge anything and just yeah. go about you know making yeah. their billions and turning their billions into tens of billions tens of billions or <laughs> hundreds of billions i like the fact yeah. that he is out there he would you know he would say something outrageous and then actually follow through by, by showing by, by example um you know so again it's a bit mm. like there are lots of guys now i think and, and gals you could follow who provide really interesting insights so yeah so his yes his idea of this birth dividend is very similar to one one of the things that you've talked about um i think it's he's only proposing two thousand dollars he has also proposed i think like, roughly removal of all sorts of taxes um right. and 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 things like that and he said you know you don't actually need that kind of taxes but if you have the right mm -hmm. policies you create uh or, or i think i forgot exactly you need some taxes but i think he's mm -hmm. um you know he's he's proposed a lot of different different things again i don't know whether they work very in theory cool. or in practice yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah i i think again very smart guy uh, you know worth uh, you know worth listening to and understanding what he's trying to say 
Nice. So there you go. I um, and look, I always like people who agree with me. So no, I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, uh, look, I'm glad Charles got the same the same sort of idea. Um, I actually, I really like. I agree with you, Doc. I like the fact that business people are getting into politics in a different way. Andrew Yang, I think it is, uh, ran for the Democratic nomination at one point too with a whole lot of different ideas. Um, he was going with a universal basic income. I'm not look. I don't love the idea. Maybe you need this much money to be, you know, worth running in, in, in politics or to get your head above the crowd. Um, I don't love the fact if that if that's the the, the future that you got to be a billionaire to, to have your voice heard. But I also do like the fact that someone other than career politicians are putting their voice and their ideas up, even if only to have them discussed and debated and added to the public debate. So I think it's probably a net positive, um, and and cool to kind of see it happening. So there you go. If you like other podcasts, listen to ours first, of course. Unlike David, who made a one-off mistake that we'll forgive him for, uh, and make sure you uh, make sure you jump in to invest like the best and listen to Jamath. All right, my next one was from Joseph um, and this was an answer specifically. He says, Scott, greetings. An odd thing happened last Thursday regarding the topic you addressed on the Sunday mailbag about what price your broker lists for a given company. Now we had a, 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 a correspondent who said, hey, um, the numbers on my, you know, the, the percentage down on my Telstra share price didn't look like the difference between the current price and yesterday's price. And I suggested that it might've been because he was looking at the indicative price pre-market. Doc, it turns out there's other options depending on which broker you're with. So here we go. Joseph says, in my Schwab account on, on uh, when the market were closed, I was scrolling down. And as I came to my position for ordinate, to my surprise, it was listed, it listed a 99% drop in share price. Um, he said that was about $5.60 less per share than it should have been. So I called Schwab and found out they don't necessarily list the last price that stocks traded hands for, but rather the last limit order. And on a thinly traded stock like Ordinate, it can get interesting, he says. Some clever bloke put in a buy limit at 12 cents a share. I guess they were hoping some inattentive trader might put in a sell market order. Fortunately, it's back trading at $5.65 today and my position reflects the price it should. Cheers, mate. Full on. Go Extreme Opportunities. Joseph, there you go. Docker, an Extreme Opportunities member. A very happy one and show he should be. The results are great. Um, yeah, so that, mate, I didn't know that. So that's interesting to me and, and maybe that might have also been some of what happened. So I guess the, the general lesson is don't, uh, don't believe everything on your broker's website, yeah? Yes, agree. I have again, nothing to say to what you said. Like, I mean, you know, I agree. And you agree with his uh, view that go extreme opportunities, yeah? Well, that that I I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm not a partial person. I you know, I just <laughs> yeah, like you know, go just, you. you know that that's it. Yeah, that's a good good service. You know, some good stock picks. <laughs> um, you know, decent returns. You're a so, humble yeah. man. You're a humble man. I, you know it's, what? It's yeah. It's yeah. Like I mean, you know, I I can't say that somebody else is wrong, right? I mean, that 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 would just be pure <laughs> rudeness. <laughs> So uh, yeah. that's right. I'll, that's just, right. So I'll just accept don't it. not join. Just don't not not join, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not. <laughs> <laughs> now speaking of which, mate, you said the returns are decent. They're actually very very good at the moment. I'm looking at the scorecard as we speak. So this is as at 11 a.m. on Thursday, the 4th of February. For those listening at a different time, the EO scorecard is up 42.3 percent for the average recommendation return per recommendation. 42.3 percent, pretty good. The market. On the same basis, up 19.1%. That is an outperformance of 23.2%, double the average market return. I said average per recommendation since the service was launched back in 2017. Man, that's almost four years ago, Doc. That time has absolutely flown. Um, so there you go, Phils. If you want to get a service that so far has done that, and again, as we always say, past performance is no guarantee, but you know, if it's not, I'm not sure what it is, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Be like Joseph. 
But Jeff's a smart man. Go and join Doc and Kevin at Motley Full Extreme Opportunities. You'll get it for a very, 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 very good price. It's a very, very good value investment, that one. Fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. There you go. Free ad. Thanks, Joseph, for the feedback. All right, on to the questions, Doc. One from Craig. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a big fan of the podcast and you two wise gentlemen. Thank you, mate. Bernard recently asked a, pod, a question of the podcast regarding his dilemma on how to deploy a large sum into the market. Can I be so old, bold, bold, not old, can I be so bold to offer a suggestion that is not my own, but I'd be interested in your thoughts for the podcast on its merits. The idea is when you get a lump sum, you put all that money into a low cost ETF that tracks the market. Then over time, as you generate ideas, you sell some units in the ETF and buy the companies you like. That way you don't run the risk of the market running away from you while you're, while you're in cash and you can take your time to get the portfolio you like for the long term. Thank you again for taking the time answering my questions. Full on Craig. What do you reckon, Doc? Rather than keeping it in cash and deploying it slowly, what about buying an ETF and then just trading out of that ETF and deploying the cash slowly into individual stocks? You know, I actually don't like that idea. I'll tell you oh. why. So it's basically you're taking market risk for market yes. returns, right? Yes. And uh, so, you know, if you have a big correction, your ETF is also going to show that big correction, right? Mm. Um, the whole point of having money on the side to invest later on is to have that optionality, right? So mm. it's not like, so when the market does a big downturn, right, your cash acts as, a, as, a, as effectively like a hedge, mm -hmm. which you wouldn't get if you have it in, you know, a similar market ETF, you'll actually have the same downturn. So you might be selling, the market sold at 30%, now you want to buy shares in XYZ, well, now you'll have to sell this ETF at 30% loss as well uh, to actually buy those shares, effectively it nullifies it. So I, uh, it is, I'm a big fan of investing slowly. Uh, because I really believe that if you're investing in the greatest companies you can find, you could, your your returns are going to come from compounding, and it's just going to take time, five, ten mm. years. You know, like if you if you give up after five years, and the, it's just not going to be worth it, in my opinion. I think you really need to give ten. It's at the ten year point that you start seeing those meaningful numbers, right? Uh, and then you know, then fifteen, and then twenty. So yeah. I would keep some in cash if I don't have the ideas. Uh, that's what I do. I just keep stuff in cash that, you know, and I'll invest it, you know, periodically. Okay, here's a good idea. I want to throw some money at this idea mm -hmm. and I'll go for that idea. Otherwise, it stays in cash. Um, yeah, but yeah, maybe you have a different view on this. Uh, yeah, I'm actually glad you disagree because I disagree with your disagreement. So that makes for, it makes for a fun conversation. Um, look, Great. You know, I think, you know, Frankly, Craig and Doc and I, we, we are disagreeing about three good options, right? Or at least, at least having three different perspectives on it because the, the simple reality is the, you know, if you've got the money, if you're putting it to work in the market, you will do very well over the long term as Doc's already highlighted. So that's, that, that's the good news, right? We're really arguing around the edges on how to best deploy that cash. I, um, I, only because I said before, like rationally, the market goes up over time. And so the longer you wait to deploy cash, statistically, the more likely you are to have less after the fact, right? If, 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 you, if you took 100 people and gave them each 100 bucks at the beginning of each year for over the last 100 years and said, you know, how many of you benefited from waiting? The average would be that the longer you waited, the more you lost. Now, not every individual, as Doc says, you can get really unlucky. You know, we can, we can talk about averages, but you're one investor and the average doesn't really matter. Your returns matter. And so Doc's absolutely right that if you add, do get unlucky enough to buy just before the downturn, if you bought in, 
what, February 15 last year, Doc, uh, you, you started your investing career, or at least that part of your money, with a 38% loss, which would have hurt like buggery. So I, I absolutely, you know, I, when I, when I say I disagree, I, I, I disagree to the sense that I would do it differently, but not that I think it's a terrible idea. Um, I actually quite like this idea, actually, Doc, I have to say, and it's something I've thought about doing before myself. Um, so I kind of, my, my first thought to Craig was, yeah, I, I think if, if the question is, I don't know what to buy yet, but I want to be invested, then Craig is, is I think, right, or at least uh, I won't say right and wrong because we have different views, but I agree with Craig. Um, if, 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 I, if someone gave me 100 grand and said, here you go, take it, what do you want to do with it? And I said, well, I don't really know what to buy yet. Now, the first thing I probably would do is, is top up positions I already own if I still have high conviction. So I'd find ways to buy individual stocks anyway. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, if I didn't have use for the cash or couldn't find individual companies to buy with the cash, I would absolutely rather have it in an ETF than have it in cash. Um, just because, as you say, it is a hedge if the market falls. But my, my speculation is over time, the market will continue to rise more than fall. Um, and if that's true, I'd rather be in the market than out of it, given the choice. So there you go. Very different answers for the same question and a, a bit of fun. I will give you a right of reply though, Doc. Uh, your thoughts on my preferred option? Um, no, I, I don't... Like, again, I, I think a lot of these things are... There's no perfect answer, really, in my, in my view. Like, I mean, yeah. what, you know, what you're saying Agreed. makes also makes logical sense right right yeah exactly um and uh, I, I think you know you have to invest effectively the way i think you can make it work and everybody is kind of different mm-hmm. i think that's why this you know we can have a general opinion about something but it it, it really you have to tailor investing to work for you right yep. if i asked you to invest the way i do <laughs> exactly. Right. You'd be yeah. a terrible investor at that, probably, yes. right? Because that's not your style. That's not correct, what you do. And if I had to yeah. invest like you, I'd be terrible at it. So um, it's just I think everybody is is uh, is going to be different because um, there, you know, again, individual circumstances, individual mental makeup, individual mm-hmm. ways of thinking about it. So yeah, like I mean, I I, I think again, your option is just. It's a sound. I mean, I can't poke holes into it. That's so, right. No, yeah, so neither is wrong, right? It's yeah. just a question of which one yeah, suits so individual I can't investor. poke holes. So I think it's just fine. Yeah, nice. I like it, mate. Come on, there you go, Craig. So two very different answers. Feel free. But uh, I think your option is great and Doc's option is great and my option is, well, great or at least not not terrible. Let's go with that. It's awesome. Question from, <laughs> question from Arpit, mate. Uh, Hesco, as always, big shout out to the podcast. Love you and the Doc. Sprinkling out the knowledge. There you go. It's a nice metaphor for us, mate. We're out there kind of sprinkling out the knowledge. Um, as always, feel free to summarize the details of my question. I will. Thank you, Arpit. I had a question about allocating to alternative asset classes. As I've educated myself a few years ago, I switched all my super to my super funds index share options, all world and an Australian one. There you go. Nice one. I am young. I'm 29, he says, and hence thought 90% international and 10% Australian would be a good mix of long-term compounded high returns compared to the premixed options. I recently swapped into Host Plus on the basis they offered an Australian infrastructure investment choice. Over three to five years, this has actually had a higher annual return than the Australian shares option and similar to the international shares infrastructure for five years. He says, I thought it would be interesting to hear your take on understanding how to think about a percentage to allocate when considering an alternative asset class like infrastructure. On one hand, it has a good historical return lately and offers diversification. On the other hand, it's all a bit opaque to understand. So far, he says, I've settled on a small amount like 5%, but I'd love to hear, see how experienced heads approach this idea. Thanks again for all the entertainment over the years. And that's from Arpit. All right, mate. Um, 
I like this question. So the first thing I'm going to ask you about actually is, is 90% international, 10% Australian. So your thoughts, 29 years old, again, we can't tell Apple what he should do. But as a general view, how do you feel about that sort of allocation? I, I think I feel really good about that. I mean, um, again, like, I mean, the Australian equity market is relatively small. So it's like a two two three two percent probably of the world equity market so uh, so I mean you know on, on that on from that point of view it, it kind of makes sense but mm. there's one thing I want to say I, I think and this is important when you when you think international though like I mean the international ETF as a whole its mm-hmm. return hasn't been anything substantially hugely different than say the SX returns right, right. so maybe you get and this is, I think, the story with ETS. Maybe you get diversification, mm-hmm. but maybe you don't get substantial, um, I guess, upside difference. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Outperformance. So, so I think that's something to. You, you, so I want to caveat my comment by saying that yes, I think ni- ninety ten would make sense. But I think when I say ninety ten, I really mean individual stocks, individual companies. Right. And okay. I really don't mean ETFs because. Okay. Like ETFs in many ways is, is, the, is a brilliant way of buying the average, right? I mean, mm-hmm. basically, you're going to get average returns because you're buying average, you're buying a basket of things, right? Yeah. And here's the other way to think about this. You think about a standard Australian ETF, you get 200 companies, mm-hmm. right? You buy an S&P 500, you get 500 companies. Now you're averaging on 500. Well, you know what? The world doesn't really have 200 awesome companies. Well, like Australia doesn't have 200 awesome companies. Like, I mean, they can't all be awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the matter of fact right and especially the top like there are, there aren't 200 awesome big companies same yeah. thing holds for S&P 500 there aren't 500 awesome yeah, companies yeah right right right, right? Well, the 500 and, largest not the 500 most awesome yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> or, and, or, or and, 500 and, most awesome particularly yeah exactly uh, and, and when I say awesome I just you know I mean a lot of different things they're not awesome yeah, yeah. companies as businesses they might not be awesome valuations they might not have awesome returns that's average yeah. when you go international typically international ETF would have 2,000 sometimes 5,000 companies. Mm. That's like basically the definition of <laughs> standardizing towards the average. Yeah, right, <laughs> right? right, right. So- um, To Arpa's you know, question though, if, he had, if, he's, if he's only got the option within the ETF to, or within the super fund, sorry, to choose some of those pre-mixed or indexed options, is, is that the right mix for that or do you think it changes because you can't pick individual companies? Well, but, but, but that's exactly what I'm, maybe I'm, this is a long about, roundabout oh, sorry, way of saying, uh, yeah, so it's a roundabout way of saying that, well, you know, maybe you're actually disadvantaging yourself when you're buying this basket of 2,000 companies because you're not, okay. you know, getting, you know, so again, this is something I've been thinking about, like, you know, you, you, is it really substantially different to buy 2,000 basket, a basket mm, of 2,000 mm. or basket of 200? Uh, or a basket of 300, ASX 300, right? Maybe you're going to get the same sort of returns or maybe within a few percentage points here and there. And I understand a few percentage points can be. So I would think a little bit about that and maybe about mm-hmm. other options that ETFs can give. Uh, actually, that makes me feel a little bit more um, positively about ETFs that have specific mandates or are focusing on specific things, have a okay. smaller, narrower focus versus just buying mm. everything that you can. So, uh, you know, that's a different answer. I like that, man. I like that. Uh, I, okay, so that, that's the first part of the question. I'll, I'll reserve my, my thoughts. Uh, second part of his question, of course, was to try and understand the role of infrastructure in that sort of mix or as well as that. How, how, I mean, I don't, I, I'm typically not a big infrastructure guy, but as Arpit says, he's actually done really well. In fact, that's outperformed in his portfolio since he bought them, um, or at least over the last five years. Maybe he didn't buy them five years ago. But looking at the historical returns, 
Your thoughts on infrastructure as part of a diversified investment in a superannuation context? I don't know. Like, again, I don't invest like that, so I don't have a view um, about infrastructure investing. Like, I mean, to me, infrastructure investing sounds like a yield investing. Mm-hmm. Like you're investing for yield, yeah, yield, yeah. you know, high, you know, high bond-like returns sort of thing, mm-hmm. high returns. Is that something that I want? Like, I don't know my personal preference would, if if I was to go back to being 25 years old, then mm-hmm. I would be looking for the highest returns possible in the best possible companies. Yep. And I would I would happily choose some volatility and you know stomach some volatility because. Given what I know now, I think you know you could retire right, at <laughs> forty if you do it right. So there's just you know um, in my mind this there's no reason for chasing three percent, four percent, five percent yield returns. I don't know anything about this infrastructure thing that he's talking about. So I don't even have a view on that particular thing, but that's my general view. I like that, Doc. So I'm going to do my answers in reverse to so pick up from your thoughts. I actually completely agree. I think. It's really rare that infrastructure does beat the rest of the market. And unless there's something about this particular ETF up, but that actually I don't understand, Doc doesn't understand, um, the the style of investing, it's super capital heavy. The pricing when those things are listed tends to be pretty efficient um, because their cash flows are pretty well known. And so your chance of getting out performance from those is really, really low. I don't think... there's kind of a there's kind of a sense in the market, and frankly, our our brethren in the finance industry might have created this view because they want to try and make money, right? If you can make something seem really complex, like you need alternatives and you need infrastructure, you need this, you need that, people throw their hands up and say, "Well, I don't know, you do it for me then." And they say, "Oh, funny you should say that. Okay, give me some money, I'll do it for you." Um, I don't think it needs to be anywhere near as complex. We don't think as a business it needs to be anywhere near that complex. You don't need alternative assets for the sake of it just because they're alternative. Um, now I'm not sure that's what way up it's doing it, but I would say that you know think about those. Hey, what should I should I buy art or should I buy whatever? No, you really shouldn't. You don't need to. Um, you can you can do completely fine keeping it pretty simple. So I don't. I wouldn't be adding infrastructure to my investing at all, um, index or otherwise. Um, if you're buying index, you're buying a diversified basket anyway. Adding alternatives because it kind of seems like you should or someone said you should or it seems important. I get the sense. I get the the sell job that's been done. Uh, I, I wouldn't be adding it for the sake of it. I think sometimes people will say it, it lowers volatility. It probably does. That's probably the one benefit if you're someone who really got freaked out about volatility. Having some of those more pedestrian returns, i.e. lower returns, but a more uh, but a less volatile range of returns will smooth some of the bumps off and that might be useful for some people. But if you're 29, you can cope with it. Again, we can't tell you what you should do, uh, but a 29-year-old who can cope with volatility probably doesn't need to invest in what I expect to be lower return assets. Um, I'm going to I'm going to differ from Doc slightly, not in not in context or content even, but just by um, uh, kind of focus, just to say that if your ETF or you sorry your super fund does um, require you or, or the options are available are probably pre-mixed or or index options. Um, certainly, uh, Australian Super, the super fund we have is default at the full. Doc and I have SMSFs, but the default option. Australian Super, you can choose between you know pre-mixed options, which are normally higher fee, and index options, which are lower fee. Um, certainly for my wife's super, she's got a, a super and a, a government super, part of her super. That can't be withdrawn at the moment, so that's we've done something similar there. If you have that choice, yeah, I think, I think overweighting when you're young to international assets makes sense. As Doc said, if nothing else, you get diversification. If that's, if that's all you get and you get the same returns, then I still reckon that's a pretty free lunch way to do it, particularly given where the Australian market is super concentrated. So I like the idea. Is 9010 right? Uh, that's probably an open question. Again, we kind of talked about last time 
the three to five year question. Uh, the closer you get to retirement and the more you need to be concerned or mindful of changes in currency rates, you may choose to slowly change that so that you're not subject to um, vagaries in the in the exchange rate at the point of needing to convert it for income or to take out a lump sum. Uh, but otherwise, I think that's that's a perfectly great solution as long as, again, you're familiar with the, the currency movements and that will be more volatile if it's nominated in other currencies than Australian dollars over time uh, because you've got the share price movements plus the currency movements. Sometimes they cancel each other out and they'll be less volatile. Other times they add to each other. And if you've got a big fall in shares and a big fall in the currency or a big rise in shares, a big rise in the currency, you will get outsized volatility. So just be mindful of that. But otherwise, I can't complain about that. Doc, next one comes from Joseph. Actually, Joseph, Joseph actually emailed us a couple of times uh, over a few weeks and we're a little bit behind our mailbag. So this is a different one. The most recent one came through yesterday, the answer he gave. So I thought I'd throw that out. Uh, but I kind of like... I, I, <laughs> I like this question. I like the way he's phrased it. So he says, greetings, guys. On your capitalism mailbag response, I wonder if a good part of why capitalists have invested for profit is that historically debt investing was more profitable than equity for a time. He says, bond yields at one point were up at around 10 or 15%, which investors were happy with. And he says, recall the chance card in the game of Monopoly. Bond matures get $50. Yippee. He says, in the great stock market crash of 29, I wonder if more bondholders by the size of the market as well as the number of participants were affected rather than stockholders. I suspect you could confirm or correct my thoughts. What say ye, Professor? Cheers, mate, from Joseph. Um, it's, it's actually one little known thing, Doc, amongst most people. The bond market is multiple sizes, multiple times, sorry, the size of the stock market. I don't actually know the, the, the proportion, but it's, it's massive, right? And I guess to some degree, company defaults are going to impact um, the, the kind of financial world if they're defaulting on debt more than actually share price movements. One thing we kind of don't get bond yields or bond prices quoted on the, on the nightly news or on our broker's stock feeds. I'm sure if they could find a way to do it, they would because they'd make more money. Um, your thoughts, mate, on, on the changing bond yields and the impact of that versus stocks? This is too complicated a question for me to like, I don't even know where to start. But I did uh, Bing search a result as to the size of the bond market. And, and the bond market size is uh, $128 trillion US dollars. That's a lot. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and I, we can do a quick search on the, you know, what is the equity market size uh, according to some result is about $85 trillion. There so you go. One and a half times. Get US. Beautiful. Yeah, give or take. All right. I like, I like the question though. We'll probably leave that there, Joseph, but I think you may well be onto something there, mate. There's certainly a, a bigger impact on the bond markets by sheer size. If companies default, uh, of course, if companies don't default, the bond prices don't need to fluctuate as much as share prices. So there's a bit of, it goes a bit both ways, but it's a fair point. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Doc, this is an interesting one too. I should, uh, again, I need, I need to timestamp this one because it's an older question. Um, but it's fascinating because uh, Terminator, who's a, a regular correspondent, says, G'day, Scott and Doc. Hope you had a Merry Christmas and have a happy 2021 too. Now, this question almost answers itself, Doc, because we're now in, in February. But he says, I've got a theoretical question for the podcast. With the growth of lower friction ways to enter the market, index funds, zero cost trading, easy to use platforms, there's been a huge increase in young investors entering the market compared to previous generations. GameStop, anybody? Anyway, he says, with a net increase of investors in the foreseeable future and a presumably similar or plateauing amount of supply that is available shares in the market, do you think this would lead to a general increase in multiples or just straight out prices investors are willing to pay for the best companies? 
And I quite like the idea. So his idea here is, look, there's, so, there's X number of companies, X number of shares. There's more people chasing those shares. It's like, you know, an extra 15 people turning up to a house auction. If there's more demand, but no more supply, does that push prices up, Doc? Well, it theoretically does. There's a demand and supply are real things. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, the thing is that if the prices get too high, then you know, if the prices basically get out of hand, and there there are there are people who will be selling, right? I mean, yeah. so that's how the demand meets the supply. <laughs> so it's not like the prices can go up infinitely because at at some point people will decide that they need to sell, and that's mm. how the market sort of balances out. Um, we, yeah, so I mean, there's some theoretical truth to that. the The other thing to realize is there's always new equities being, you know, uh, mm. you know, there's new placements, there's new equities. So you know, the market is also expanding, right? It's not that the market is right, static, right, right. right? So I mean, by definition, nothing is static, right? We have new businesses. We have like money is a funny thing right money is a funny thing because somehow money grows more money right yeah. <laughs> right so, so you know like i mean it's like saying well you know australia has an economy of this size 1.8 trillion dollars well next year is going to be a little bit bigger than that how did that happen yeah right so it's the same thing right so, i mean in 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 a way markets are also growing expanding new things are coming online so yeah I like that. A couple of things too for me. Um, the first is, I think you're right, Doc. I will say a little bit of a small insight into our business. Um, we have many, many, many more people who are boomers and older Gen Xers joining the millennials, which is to our constant frustration, Doc, it's fair to say. Um, but the reality is because generally speaking, if you're in your 20s and early 30s, you don't have much money to invest. Uh, and that's not your fault. You haven't had a chance to compound it yet or save a lot of your income. Versus someone who's 55 is like, well, I've got 10 years to retirement. I've got some money saved up in super or myself, but I really need to get my act together. What do I do? And they come to us for help. Now, we're glad that we can help and we're pretty pleased with that. Um, as we've said many times on the podcast, our greatest envy is for those of you who are 20-something rather than our age, which is more than 20-something. Uh, and you know, we, we would swap places in a heartbeat. Uh, so one, one of the things we love about doing the podcast is it gives a a simple, easy way for younger people to to take part in this investing conversation uh, without necessarily joining services they don't necessarily feel ready for or have the money to invest against. So I would say for what it's worth um, that, yes, there's a whole lot more young people joining in, but the money they're bringing to the table is is pretty small uh, relative to the size of the rest of the market. So every new millennial investor who joins the market with five hundred bucks um, is is adding join, joining you know another investor who's sixty eight and's got a million dollars invested in the market or whatever. So you know there's more people, but the actual dollar value of that is different. To Doc's point, also you see many more companies join, and frankly, if equity prices go up, it tempts more people onto the markets and actually increases that supply at the same time. So yes, all else being equal, more money chasing the same assets would put, to use the economist term, upward pressure on share prices. Um, but I don't think the the size of the pressure nor the the, the supply response um, are, are fixed. And I think you find that will just, I very much doubt it's a meaningful impact. In fact, the addition to super is probably far more impactful than the number of new investors joining the market with smaller amounts of money. Make one from Chris. Hi, Scott. Another question for the mailbag. Please just call me Chris again. Okay, Chris again. Sorry, bad joke. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Chris. You on the dock are my favorite resource, he says, for share advice, financial education, and entertainment. Oh, how good's that? Combined, he says, you both produce a value-packed, entertaining, and insightful podcast. Man, Chris, we've got to get you on the PR team, mate. My wife got me a share advisor subscription for Christmas, he says. Now, just to get EO and I will be a happy man. Well, there you go, Mrs. Chris. There's a Valentine's Day present. Valentine's Day is coming up. I think Chris would like a uh, EO subscription. All right. He's got a few questions. One is related to 
S-O-R. I don't know that company, Doc. He says, I've heard it's a pool development fund and that means shareholders are exempt from CGT. Is that right? What are your thoughts on pool development funds? Do you know much about S-O-R? Also, i uh, got another question about WBT we didn't talk about. Uh, all right, cheers and full on, Chris. Doc, do you know S-O-R and do you know much about pool development funds? I have. Well, well, I know a little bit about pool development funds. You can use pool development funds to basically not pay some taxes and things like that. Um, As long as I think some type of company that um, which is doing R and D, active R and D, I know I know nothing about SOR. There you go. Can't really help you on that one, Chris. Unfortunately, we'd love to help you, mate, if we had the opportunity. But yes, it is a pool development fund. It does have tax advantages. I. I'm going to say the reason I wanted to include this question, despite us not knowing as much as we'd like to know about the company, is I just think, you know, I'm not saying this is the case based on your question, but many investors uh, in Australia in particular are whipsawed around by tax. I've said before, I think on the podcast, Doc, I'm sure you can confirm or otherwise, there would be probably one tenth of the number of accountants in Australia if the question people asked wasn't, hey, how can I pay less tax? But rather, hey, how can I maximize my after tax returns? They feel like the same question, but they're really, really not. We've talked about house prices on Friday, Doc. One of the things I think I would probably change is access negative gearing for housing because part of what's driving up that speculation is people go to the accountant and just say, how can I pay less tax? And the accountant says, well, you can lose a fortune on repayments over here and pay less tax. People go, great, I'll do it. Um, the accountant doesn't really say, look, it'll cost you 10 grand in, in losses to save five grand in tax. That wouldn't uh, normally uh, get people excited, but our, our desperate desire to pay less taxes is a hell of a thing in Australia. I'm sure that it's true around the rest of the world, but it certainly leads to some perverse decisions. Uh, so again, Chris, I'm not saying that is your view or your uh, approach. All I would say is, mate, please don't jump on stuff just because it's a pool development fund and you can avoid or defer or defray or lower your capital gains tax bill. Um, I, I'd far rather pay much more tax given the choice, Doc, um, and make a lot of money than, than paying a little bit less tax because I made a little bit less money uh, given the choice. Any thoughts on that? I have nothing to add. Beauty. Thanks, Chris. Question from Oz. Oz says, hi, Scott and Doc. Happy New Year. I listen to your podcast every week without a miss. Thank you, mate. You guys are great and probably the best podcast on finance. I don't think it's probably, is it, Doc? Are we definitely or certainly or unquestionably the best podcast? Uh, Unquestionably would sound great. (laughs) Let's pass that on as feedback. I think that's important. Everyone needs feedback, Doc, and I think... Our correspondents occasionally can do with a bit of extra feedback. We're just we're here to help, is all I'll say. All right. Exactly. Got a... Should we even answer the question? Uh, yeah, we're nice people. Okay, fine. We're, we're, we're nice people. We know, we'll answer the question in advance, knowing that by doing so, we'll actually generate some goodwill that might hopefully end up actually helping us, helping him. It's, it, it's, it's a win-win. I'm all about the win-win. All right. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> I like it. Let's go for it. I've got a question for the mailbag, he says, and I wanted your thoughts on it, please. Say I have a thousand bucks to invest. What would be the best investment long-term? Should I contribute it to super after tax? Should I pay it off the home loan or should I put it in a high growth ETF? I know you can't give personal advice, but hoping you would able you would be able to give me a few pointers. This is for Doc. Hashtag, why isn't TikTok banned already? <laughs> I have no view on that, Doc, but you may I have a view on the, on the hashtag. I hope, and I'm sure you have a view though, on the best way to invest a thousand bucks given the choice mate and we can't give personal advice as, as Oz says would we or would you contribute to super would you pay it off your home loan would you whack it in a high growth ETF Ooh, I, I actually don't know like I mean it's very difficult to know like I probably I, I like paying down my debt 
um, sooner than later. That's mm. my personal preference because uh, I just dislike the idea of debt. Um, the debt is almost the thing that basically makes people dependent, makes suboptimal decisions and things like that. So debt can be useful, but it also can be a handicap. Mm. Uh, or maybe that's just my way of thinking about it. Um, that said, like, I mean, again, without knowing, you know, what is your comfort level? What is, you know, again, it's very hard to answer that question. Um, either, like, I mean, you know, there are advantages or disadvantages of everything, right? So, I mean, you could put down some money uh, towards your loan that reduces your debt load, reduces the interest yeah. you pay, that has advantages. You could put it into super, you get a tax advantage, you don't get to touch that money for a long time. That's another advantage, um, unless, of course, the government lets you withdraw it. Um, but in general, you know, that, that the money's going to sit nicely there, compounding for you. Again, mm-hmm. depends on what sort of, you know, how the super is being invested. But, you know, that's, you'll still get decent compounding and long-term compounding that has advantages. And a high-growth ETF has its own advantage. You probably hopefully get a higher return, right? So, uh, you know, in these sort of things, what I say is that, you know, make a list of pros and cons and then basically decide based on that. I love it, mate. I think that's spot on. I um, I think there's also a bit of a a false choice in there, Oz. You've you've kind of, you hit it nicely. uh, But of course, you can invest in a high-growth ETF inside super, potentially. And so there's there's ways of kind of combining these choices in a way that makes some sense for you. Um, Look, yeah, I'll echo Doc's, Doc's point. I... I think it's. I, I, I need to be careful with my language. I was going to say almost inevitable, uh, but I need to be. A because it's responsible. B because I take a dim view of us um, suggesting things that are almost certainty. So let me let me wind that back a couple of, a couple of notches. Um, if you can borrow to pay your home loan at one point nine nine percent fixed for five years or three years, which is around right now, um, I I would be reasonably comfortable to believe I could get a better return than that. So so all else being equal. Um, uh, you know, fin- purely financially, we say this, I say this semi-regularly, purely financially, I'm pretty sure investing it is better than paying off the home loan. But as Doc's highlighted nicely, these aren't just purely financial questions. So if you're asking us, what's the, what do we think is the best financial, purely financial mathematical decision? I think paying off the house would be the third of my, the options in that one for me. I'd go with the other two first. But I have in the past absolutely sold shares to pay down my mortgage. And so, you know, and, and knowing exactly that, it's one of those, you know, I have, I have an internal struggle, right? There's the angel and the devil on the two shoulders saying, you're doing what? You can make more money investing it. And I'm pretty sure that's true. On the other shoulder, it's like, you know, you want to risk that and you can have the safety and security and, you know, sleep at night of, of paying down the mortgage. Wouldn't you rather do that? And so I've got, I know both those feelings, but purely mathematically, I'm very, very sure that over time, uh, an investment in the stock market, for example, will outperform a 2% uh, cost of, of a mortgage, even allowing for the tax benefit, which is obviously you pay tax on any gains in the market. You don't pay tax on the money you pay off your home loan. So it is tax advantage from that perspective. Super, um, if you are comfortable to lock up your money till retirement, I think you should go super. I think, you know, well, not, you can't say you personally, uh, but, but, you know, not doing super, doing outside super just for the sake of it. I see no good reason to separate them unless again from an emotional even a financial perspective you want the flexibility and freedom to use that money at 50 or 55 or 57 or something if you you, if it's in super you can't touch it right so there is value there's optionality value there is flexibility value in keeping some money outside super you might want to do that but again if you're asking just one thousand dollars one off what's the best return the tax advantage of super is just like it's it's too good to ignore. So go with that. And again as I started with by saying the high growth ETF I think is a great idea. Um, I would I would be mindful a little bit that, you know, Doc and I have said before, the, the arbitrary growth and value stuff is not super useful. Um, and like everything, is it high growth? Well, do you know it's going to be high growth? You know, how do you, how do you value it? What do you expect the future returns to be? Don't get too caught up in 
it has been high growth in the past, so therefore it must continue to be, or it's in sector X, and therefore that must always continue to go well despite valuations. So I would just caution anybody, just you know, uh, buying the highest growth stuff last year might actually be okay, uh, but just just be careful that you're not just sort of extrapolating unnecessarily. Make sure it is a, an ETF you expect to continue to grow quickly rather than one that has grown in the past. We heard about infrastructure earlier, for example. Um, I would hate anyone to say, well, it's been great for the last five years, therefore it'll always beat the rest of the market, therefore I'm going to put all my money in infrastructure. I think that would be a, a silly decision. But again, the numbers in the past would suggest it's been a good result. So there you go. I'll finish that one there, Doc. Any any more thoughts from that one? I have nothing to add. Let's go to Martin's question then. Hi, Scott. I'm a share advisor and Extreme Opportunities member here. Thank you, mate. And a big fan of the podcast. I was wondering if you guys can point me in the right direction. I mean, another, another super question. I invest my own super using the Australian Super Member Direct option. However, I can only invest in the ASX 300. Is there anywhere in the Motley Fool that would help in picking which stocks of these I should look at? Thanks for any help. Much appreciated. Well, he says, it's not of Jared, but it's Martin on, on Twitter. So maybe Martin is an omni plume. I'm not sure. So Martin slash Jared, thank you for the question, mate. Um, this is a bit of, uh, it's not supposed to be an ad, right? But he's asked about what we can do to help him. So ASX 300, Doc, options that we have at the Motley Fool for investing in those stocks. Well, like, I mean, we don't have a service that specifically says that we're going to, you know, make recommendations only from ASX 300, but I mean, share advisor that, you know, one you run, I mean, a lot of a lot of those companies tend to be the larger larger yeah. ones. Like you know, I, I'd call them mid cap, mid cap ish. Yeah. Like occasionally there'll be one that's outside maybe the SX three hundred, but typically it's you know mostly SX three hundred, right? Mm-hmm. Within that SX three hundred, if I'm characterizing, I think dividend investor. But if you're looking for growth, uh, if you're not interested in in I guess dividends and franking, maybe dividend investor is not. Yeah, so I think the most ideal yeah. one would be share advisor. According to me, I can't think of any other one um, that would sort of fit the SX300 bill. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think it, it, in terms of bang for buck and, and value for money, the the greatest propo- I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying, Doc, the greatest proportion of recommendations in the ASX300 would be at Share Advisor, and probably maybe oh, maybe dividend investor might run it, give it a run for its money, but it's a different mandate. So if you want if you want total return focused stocks without worrying about dividends, share advisor is probably best. And I run that service for full disclosure. Um, or Ed, our, our friend and colleague, runs dividend investor. That's also a good option, but does focus on higher yielding dividend stocks. That so makes Ed's job a little bit harder than mine. I don't mind saying that because he's not listening. No, he probably is actually. Good work, Ed. You're doing well, mate. Um, he's, got, he's got a harder job because he's got to do what I do, but but only from dividend paying stocks, which is harder again. Uh, extreme, uh, everlasting income probably is the same doc, but that's even more income focused. So Martin, there you go. Um, the other thing I would say, by the way, is to the extent any investor is thinking about super plus personal portfolio, we've had this question before, but if you are in a situation where you feel like you're limited and, and you want to be outside that, make sure you think about your total portfolio as one lot. So if you want to invest outside the 300, but you don't have the choice in super, then you may want to think about other options outside super. If you have a, a separate amount of money you're allocating to your own investments in your own name, that might be a chance to look for some higher growth, smaller companies to balance out your portfolio if you want to do that, if that's a, a, attractive to you and appropriate. Um, so think about how you invest different parts of your investment in different structures, sometimes, like in Martin's case, based on the uh, the, op- the options you got within that and then balance that out outside superannuation. May one from Percy. Hi, Scott and Doc. A quick thanks. Your podcast has taught me so much over the past couple of years, especially the psychological side of investing. I would have saved a lot of money during the GFC if I didn't panic. This time around, and thanks to you guys, I had the confidence to be buying in March. Good stuff, Percy. Well done, mate. That's that's pretty cool. My question, 
Cochlear and CSL are both well down from their highs. Do you think they are both still growth stocks? Would love your opinions and keep up the great banter. That's from Percy. Well, Percy, firstly, mate, thank you very much for the kind words. Um, this, that's exactly why we do what we do. Uh, and if we've helped to keep you calm during what was a really turbulent time, then we've done our jobs, Doc. I don't know about you, but I feel, I feel pretty good. That's a, that's a nice, nice comment to get and uh, kind of why we do it. So thank you, mate. Doc, your thoughts are on CSL and Cochlear. Both are well down from their highs, Percy says. Are they both still growth stocks? He wants our opinion. Well, I'll leave Cochlear to you because it's in your service. Uh, I have some <laughs> opinion you. about <laughs> I have some uh, opinion about CSL. I, I, I personally, like, I mean, uh, you know, CSL. I, I think is uh, I think there's a tendency of the investment community to overrate the company, its mm-hmm. quality, and and therefore assign it a much higher multiple than it deserves. Right? I mean. Mm. If you think about its business lines, right, it's basically blood maker, blood you know, blood plasma maker, mm-hmm. and it makes vaccines. Like you know, and vaccine is a smaller portion of his business. But let's look at vaccine, right? I mean, it basically is right now. For example, if you think of a COVID vaccine, it's basically making somebody else's vaccine on contract. Mm-hmm. It still doesn't have it up to speed, right? Now. I don't know. Like, if you're a world-class manufacturer, then you should be up to speed. You should be really quick, and you should be like, you know, throwing the thing out, and maybe you should be exporting, right? Under license, of course. Yeah. So I don't. Know. I don't have a very high opinion of CSL. It's cash flows too, actually reflect exactly what I'm talking about. There's hardly been any growth in the cash flows. It's been like a billion dollars. Yes, a billion dollars of free cash flow is a lot, yeah. uh, especially in the, in the context of the ASX. But man, there's no growth there, right? Um, it's been like constant there. So uh, again, I, you know, and if you think about blood makers, right, you know, there's Takeda, which does, I mean, Takeda sells uh, for what? A fraction, it's multiple a fraction of um, the multiple people assigned to CSL. So CSL in my, like if I had, you know, CSL is like a, it's extremely overvalued. Like, you know, if you think about it, it's, it's um, $1 billion or so of its free cash flow. That's like 100 times. And I convert that, it's US dollars. To convert that to AUD, you're paying 100 times that. Man, just, you know, just go do a calculation for Google or, you know, mm. I know that's technology business, but, you know, infinitely higher quality business at infinitely cheaper price. So I don't know. Uh, I really think there's something wrong with the way CSL is priced. Um, I think the market is like, it's got it completely upside down, completely gone bonkers in terms of how it, it, it has um, uh, it has evaluated. Like I would not touch it with, if it's almost like even if you gave me the share for free, I would not give it back. It's That's, oh, that's how I think about it. That's brutal. Um, yeah. Well, it's, well, Actually, you know, like again, like you know, we think of CSL. There's there's this halo around CSL being world class. I don't know. I'm questioning. Is it world class? Right? Makes bloods. Other people do. Makes vaccines that other people's make. And you know, under license and can't make it fast enough. Is, is that definition of world class? In my books, it's not, but maybe in somebody else's book, it is, and maybe I'm missing <laughs> something. But, uh, you know, the free cash flows talk for itself. Um, right, you know, PE of 40, maybe, oh, yes, earnings are growing. But, you know, like the thing with the earnings is that earnings can grow, cash flow don't. Ultimately, what matters is cash flow, right? Ultimately, business is valued at discounted, <laughs> discounted free cash flow. Uh, that's the right valuation metric. Um, so I don't know. Again, that's my rant on CSL. This is you know, this is my this is my latest rant about how I think there's a huge pricing. Um, uh, you know, 
I would say in my books, if I had multiplied, if I put a 30 multiple on um, a CSL, 1.3 billion AUD, 30 multiple, it'll be, you know, it should market cap should be around $40 billion. Uh, <laughs> fair value in my books. That's probably half or maybe more than that <laughs> of where it is today. So, or maybe like, you know, a third of that. So, yeah. That's my views. You know, I'll reserve. My, I don't have views on Cochlear. <laughs> I haven't actually looked at Cochlear in a long time um, uh, to have a view on Cochlear. There you go. Thank you, mate. Um, I will say, so if I, if I said to you, Doc, that uh, the CSL's net profit has gone up about eighty percent in three years, would that change your view? Is there no, is there not some view that maybe sales growth and, and profit growth can eventually justify the current price? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, Thank you for being clear. Uh, uh, because again, again, profit. I don't know. You know, you can book profits in many different ways. Uh, sure. What I, in my mind, the best, the free cash flow of a billion some dollars, right? Mm-hmm. US. You really, when this company is priced at 150 billion or whatever it is right now, um, like 100 times free cash flow, really. We are expecting it to pull an Amazon and more, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Which I am almost certain is not going to pull, <laughs> right? Good. This is a bet that I would not make, you know, every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And I think no sane person should be making this bet, but that's my <laughs> guess, you know. Um, and it's you know, harder. Right? I mean, uh, this, the stock is up tenfold in ten years. I mean, it, it, we we could have made the argument probably convincingly and probably even correctly. And the shares got away. I think that's one of those things for investors, particularly if you're new to the market. Um, it, it, you know, good companies can go badly uh, share price-wise. Bad companies can go really well share price-wise. And, and mediocre companies can go anywhere share price-wise. I think if you, looked at the, if you looked at the graph, there is someone right now, maybe more than one person, Doc, yelling at the, yelling at the podcast device and saying, hang on, how can you say it's crap? I've made 10 times my money since 2011. Um, th- thanks very much for your negatives, but just, I've got all this money to, to count. You know, you, you're wrong. There is a difference between what the shares have done and what the shares are worth, right? Well, yeah. Like I, I did not for once. That's why I use the word that the share price is whatever the returns. You know, <laughs> uh, past returns are no indication of Indeed. future returns. Indeed. And uh, market, market and market participants in Australian... Uh, e- the reality is there's a lot of money, hot money flowing into, <laughs> hey, I have to buy a blue chip stock. What do I buy? Well, CSL, right? Yeah. Uh, there is an absolute reality of, um, uh, let's call it, uh, money chasing stuff, right? Yeah. Maybe yep. CSL is a perfect short. Maybe someone should come and short it. <laughs> That's how the price goes down. <laughs> I think, like, I think, I think that's it. And personally, look, honestly, this is this is a challenge. Doc makes the point. I think, I think the, the all these points are valid, but the most valid one for mine is there's a relatively small number of companies that everyone seems to love in Australia, and that does create to some degree its own share price momentum. And, and for all those talks point about the shorting, right? There's there's something about that idea of you know, at what point does CSL get disconnected from from value? Um, I don't have I don't have problems paying up for companies that are growing quickly and or have big addressable market potential. CSL's already been knocked back from doing a large acquisition because it would have made it too dominant globally. So it, there's not a lot of market share gain left. Maybe it can find new products, invent new products, create new products that do give it more growth. Um, that the race of of technology is is swift and. It's entirely possible that its market is 10 times the size in five years for reasons X, Y, and Z. Um, I've never bought it, never recommended it for, for reasons that, exactly as Doc says, it's always been expensive on any sort of multiple of earnings or cash flow. And it's very hard to accurately say like an Amazon or a Google or somebody else, this thing could be X times the size. I don't know how you make that judgment call with a business like CSL convincingly and confidently. And so, yeah, yeah, honestly, you know, we launched Share Advisor almost 10 years ago. If I bought CSL back then or recommended it, I'd be sitting on a 10 bag or I'd look like a genius. 
Um, but sometimes you have to say, you know what, even if the price goes where it goes, if you can't find a fundamentally justifiable reason to do it, uh, at some point it's, it's, it's pure speculation and arguably at some prices it becomes... Uh, not very, not very good. Not very smart speculation. CSL, uh, sorry, Cochlear. Um, I like Cochlear a lot. I think Cochlear is one of those businesses that has a multi-decade growth potential ahead of it. The world is becoming more affluent. More cases of hearing loss and and um, total deafness and partial deafness are being identified and treated. Um, and the size of the potential market for that treatment continues to grow. Cochlear remains the top of its field, and it has. By the way, I've said before, and it's, it's, it, you feel a little bit uncomfortable saying Badiki, but it has literally lifetime customers, right? If you get an implant at, at 3, 5, 7, 10, 15, um, you're going to have update your processor, replace your processor multiple times during your life, and that literally gives you a lifetime customer. The biggest risk for Cochlear is brand damage, slash a competitor with a better product. That's always a risk. And there is a, a chance or a risk that medical technology continues to improve to the pace that an implant is no longer at some future point, the, the best option for people and I guess at, at some future point you know we might look back at cochlear implants as as great but but old school technology and some sort of genetic treatment or something else uh, pre-birth diagnosis a million other things could be better solutions so there are risks there um, but short of those coming to fruition you can always keep an eye on those I think cochlear is one of the better businesses to own for multi-decades um, with not, not benign neglect, but certainly uh, with, with a high level of probability, I think it's going to be much bigger and better in, in 15, 20 years' time than it is today. You Any know, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah, please. Yeah, no, no, uh, yeah. so this is, this is the unscripted, okay? Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make... Give, <laughs> is that code for you about to shoot my argument down in flames? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> so I'm going to throw two companies at you, okay? And ask you which one, if you can only buy one, <laughs> Oh, Only okay. buy one, okay. and, yeah, yeah. and I'm going to make, and I'm going to make yeah, yeah. both both companies going to be your children. So this is going to be a hard <laughs> one for you. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> okay, Kogan or Cochlear? Oh, which one good would you question, own? mate? The, and they're diametrically different yes, companies. Yes. One is international, one is local, one is a big, chi- you know, big kind of blue chippy. One yeah. is still uh, not yet maybe blue chip. Huh. Uh, I think both pay a little dividend. I think Kogan pays a little dividend, right? Uh, Kogan has probably some insane <laughs> price to earnings multiple, maybe looks yeah, like 100 right. or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, which one and why? Yeah, this is a free, free. And you know, listeners, you should thank me because I'm going to get. You know, I'm basically getting, getting you to a free stock. Turn the tables, nice. There you go, mate. It's actually an unfair question, uh, only in the sense that I own Kogan, not Cochlear. So uh, I, the the answer is probably already known, or at least to me, not as hard as it otherwise might be. But I love the way you phrased it. Um, I would buy Kogan, uh, but if I, I would buy Kogan on a shorter leash, if you said to me, buy one stock, go away, come back in 2026, and un, un, open the box. I might still go Kogan. If you said buy one and open the box in 2031, I actually would buy Cochlear, I have to say. I think there's less that can go wrong in Cochlear's business and more likelihood to my mind that it's juggernaut type. You know, we talked about mature businesses on Friday. Um, you know, I think there's more chance that Cochlear is around and, and worth more. Kogan has many, uh, bro- broader range of potential outcomes the further out we go. And so if I had to, if you, if you took the, the, the sell button off my keyboard uh, and only gave it back to me in 10 years time, I'd buy Cochlear. But I, I would absolutely buy Kogan. I think Kogan's got more raw upside potential. It's smaller. It's growing faster. Um, and frankly, you know what? The ability of a small, fast-growing business to turn a little bit of profit you know, a lot of profit pretty quickly is actually underappreciated. We talked about compounding the other day. Um, the other thing is, I think, the, the leverage, operating leverage we talk about semi-regularly. Uh, Cochlear is way through its journey now. It's a, a slower, steadier grower. 
um, Kogan's got much more explosive growth potential. So I would go Kogan over five years, but if you locked me down and said I couldn't sell for 10, I'd actually go Cochlear. How's that? Okay. Excellent answer. I was, I was just going to say, like, you know, um, you know, as much as I was bagging CSL for, you know, free cash flow growth, right? I mean, what one thing that Cochlear has actually done reasonably well, again, you can argue about multiples, but it has actually grown its free cash flow, right? In 2013, yeah. it was about $40 million or so, $45 million or so. In, you know, by 2019, it was about $240 million or so. So, I mean, you know, that's a pretty substantial increase in free cash flows. It's, a, you know, it, the cash is gushing there and it's yeah. increasing, which is good. Of course, 2020 maybe is an odd year. Uh, so, you know, we can rule that out. Nice one, mate. I like it. Last one. We're, we've run out of time, mate. But one last, one last bit of mailbag feedback from Colin this time. And this is simple. He just says, I don't have a question for the podcast, but I really want to use the hashtag GetDoc on SeaShantyTalk. So for those who don't know, TikTok has been taken over by people singing sea shanties, which is frankly about peak 2021, mate. I, I, after 2020, when, when the new year brings us a, 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 a bizarre uh, thing that, you know, TikTok, the cool, the cool kids are all singing sea shanties on TikTok, believe it or not. So um, there you go. Colin wants you on sea shanty talk. Is that enough to get you across the line, mate? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I am so not going to uh, TikTok or anything that looks like TikTok. <laughs> Sorry. I try. I try, Colin. All right. Mate, that does us. We are done for another mailbag edition. We've got so many questions. Thank you to everyone who sent them in. Please keep doing it. Uh, as always, I'll go through the socials very quickly so you can write them down. If you're not already following us, seriously, what's wrong with you? Join us on, I'll do it in reverse this time, Facebook. Go to Scott Phillips Money, which is my page, or The Motley Fool Australia. Pretty straightforward there. If you're on Instagram, The Motley Fool AU is our corporate page, or I'm TMF Scott P. Those same hashtags or same handles, I should say, are true for Twitter, at The Motley Fool AU and at TMF Scott P. And of course, Twitter is the only, the exclusive, you should get paid by Twitter, mate, for remaining Twitter exclusive. The only place you can get The Good Doctor is on Twitter. So join, join Twitter and then follow at Anirban Mahati for all of Doc's Twitter goodness. Uh, and of course, if you are still on the old school email, man, I remember a time when email wasn't old school, mate. That's how old I am. You can go email us at info at fool.com.au. Please do uh, subscribe. Please do give us a rating and a review. If you wouldn't mind, it does help other people find the podcast. Helps uh, it get a little bit more publicity, a bit more prominence too, which means people can find it. And of course, if you like it enough to tell your friends, we'd appreciate that as well. You can get some of my emails. I'm doing about three a week these days, mate. Emails to our readers. So you can join that mailing list. You'll also get some marketing material, full disclosure, by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.